0: Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 19, starting with verse 41. So the last time we were here, we spoke about the disparity, really, between the people's expectation on God and his expectation on the people, which largely we saw played out in the advent of the Messiah. And as we continue through the the next few chapters of Luke, we're going to be going through the last week of Jesus's earthly life. Today we're going to see the fever pitch of the religious, religious establishment Uh, rejection of the Messiah, but we saw that that was prophesied, and their desire to take him out of the picture. And we're going to go see this through a few different uh, sections of the scripture here. Uh, The downward plunge exemplified in number one, the prophecy of Jerusalem's destruction, the cleansing of the temple, the rejection of Jesus' authority, and the parable of the vineyard in that order. So starting with verse 41, it says, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, And saying, if you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. So you have this picture, okay, starting from what we covered last Sunday, the triumphal entry, Jesus is on the donkey, right? Hosanna, Hosanna. They're waving the palm branches at him. There's excitement, right? And Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem. Why? Because he knew the future. He knew that in some 37 years, Jerusalem would be destroyed, the walls broken down, the temple demolished, and about one million inhabitants would, have been, would be slaughtered, with the rest taken as slaves. So That's a good reason to be upset kind of reminds you of the weeping prophet Jeremiah. 619 years prior to this event, Jeremiah did the same thing. He wept over Jerusalem. He had the same sorrow for the city and its inhabitants. Well, what does history tell us? If we could put the... Uh, Chris. <laughs> history tells us that there was the first Jewish revolt. This is all documented. Uh, it started in A.D. 66, and ending in AD 73 with the siege at Masada, which some of you may be familiar with. You had uh, some emperors or some Caesars that came into play here. It was Nero, remember how wicked Nero was? He died, then Galba replaced him, then Otho, then Vitellius, then Vespasian, and then his son Titus Vespasian. Why is that important? Because we'll see that the Roman general Titus Vespasian, prior to him becoming a, a Caesar, an emperor, surrounded Jerusalem with four legions. This is all historical fact. As as you listen to what I'm saying, remember what I just read, what Jesus said in the scripture 37 years before. Uh, They built, the Romans built a wall around the perimeter. They built their own wall around the perimeter of the city to cut off supplies and to cut off escapes. Uh, The Jewish zealots would come in and out and attack the Romans and they finally got fed up. They built this wall to contain them, right? And then what happened was the, Uh, The Jerusalem wall was breached and the soldiers came in at the north end of the wall, which this is going to come into more play when we talk about the cleansing of the temple. But uh, this is actually north. That's east. And this is the Antonia Fortress. This is the northern part of the city. So what happened was the Romans breached that wall. They came in through the Antonia Fortress and they started slaying the people. Again, all historical uh, fact here. The orders were given not to destroy the temple, the massive structure in the center of the city, because the Romans wanted to take it, you know, eradicate the Jews and make it into a pagan temple. But the hatred of the soldiers for the Jews, the anti-Semitism was so strong that they burnt down the temple anyway, defying the order. The temple heated up, okay, from from the fire inside, and all the gold and the silver started melting into the structure. And literally, Jesus says, one stone wouldn't be left upon another. The soldiers took that temple down brick by brick, stone by stone, and completely leveled it. And as they would take those blocks off of it after it cooled down, they would scrape off the gold and take it for themselves. So they they pillaged the the area and they took all the gold. So what Jesus says came, came true with amazing accuracy. Now, he says that they will level you and your children within you. The siege of the city prior to the Romans coming in, to some people it was it was welcome because of the sufferings. Starvation inside, disease, cannibalism, and slayings. So that was what was going on. It was so accurate, Jesus' prophecy, that many critics said that Jesus' followers must have inserted this into the scripture after A.D. 70 because it was too accurate. The same criticism happened with Daniel's uh, book of Daniel because of his accuracy. They said there's no way. Of course, their pre- presupposition is there's no such thing as prophecy. So they have to speculate that it was added afterwards. But all Bible scholars will date this writings to the A.D. 60s prior to the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, and we also see in Daniel 9, if you're taking notes, he speaks about the, you know, what, what would take place and also the future uh, happening the same way after when the third temple is built by the Antichrist and his forces, right? So what's ironic is the word Jerusalem in Hebrew means, Yeru, the word is Yerushalayim, which means founded, peaceful or possession of peace. However, it was anything but that. And Jesus said, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, that's interesting. The Lord held them accountable. Well, how would things be different if they did know the time of their visitation? Because they should have known the time of their visitation, right? What if they would have heeded John the Baptist's message to repent wholesale, and they received the kingdom of heaven uh, with with humility, and they had that spiritual revival? Well, two things would have happened. Number one, temporally, and then I'll go to the spiritual. Temporally, Jerusalem wouldn't have been less, wouldn't have been so much concerned with the temporal if they would have received that spiritual revival, And they wouldn't have revolted against Rome in A.D. 66, leaving Rome to the judgment of God. Spiritually, no matter what happened, if they would have done what the Lord had commanded them, what God had commanded them in the scriptures, he would have spared the city. Because, you know what's funny? Things continue to come back. It's like in our lives. If we don't learn a lesson, kind of the same lesson comes back a few years later. And if we're dopey enough not to learn the first time, we we learn the hard way again, right? But what happened in 586 B.C. was God also promised he would spare Jerusalem if certain things would happen. And of course, the people didn't listen. And you know history. Nebuchadnezzar came and laid siege to the city and destroyed it. Same type of situation. I want to read to you um, Jeremiah 18, two verses, Jeremiah 18:7 through 8. Because we kind of get hung up on some of this stuff, and sometimes we read it. Again, with our own presuppositions. Well, gee, why would would God allow that? Well, let me tell you what Jeremiah says here. God speaking through him. In verse 7, it says, The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, to pluck it up, to pull down, and to destroy it, if, conditional statement, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, picture of repentance, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. Even up until the last minute, God gives the people a chance to repent. And He does that with us too. So if we find ourselves in trouble because of sin, because of disobedience, because of rebelliousness, we can't blame God. Because up until the last minute, we can fall on our knees and cry out to God and repent. And what does repentance mean? All it means is to change direction. You're right, Lord, I'm wrong. This is what your word says. I'm going to turn from that sin. And I'm going to go in your direction. And God will relent of the disaster that he was uh, to bring upon you for sin. A few good lessons to learn from this is true repentance always averts judgment. There will be a time when it's too late to repent. There will be a time in the end times where uh, whatever state you're, you're caught in, whatever state you're there, you're solidified in. But for now, there's time for repentance. Every day, there's a day for repentance. Every day. Today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. It's been a day for salvation every day for the last 2,000 years. This could be your day. Uh, So don't postulate. I have a friend who we talk about the rapture and the Lord coming back for his people. And he said, when I see you and Heather and Josiah disappear, then I'll believe. It's like, why wait for that point? (laughs) Right? But we do it. We, We just do it. So now's the time. Today is the day. And the second thing is to whom much given, much is required which is a hard concept for people to swallow. You see, Jerusalem had the law, they had the prophets, they had the miracles, they had the Messiah, and they squandered God's blessing. And even so with us, we're held accountable for what we know. You know when, you, when you read the Bible and you understand the Bible and you come long enough, you, you're held accountable for that. Nobody can continually come to a church, a Bible-believing church, and continue to hear the word of God and continue to understand the word of God and then reject it and then later stand before God and, and, and uh, ask God for a pardon, you know, after rejecting that salvation, a- after rejecting his way, we are held accountable to whom much is given, much is required. 45, it says, then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, But you have made it a den of thieves. And as he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Now, this is believed to occur in the outer court of the Gentiles, because in the outer court of the Gentiles, it was a long, it was a pretty big open area which would have been conducive to it, maybe for lack of a better word, this flea market type atmosphere that these people were producing, right? And um, I'll just go into a little bit about the temple. I think it's pretty fascinating. Uh, this is the Holy of Holies, which is only the high priest could enter there once a year to make sacrifice for sin. inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, uh, which God said his physical glory, his Shekinah glory, would hover above it, would dwell within it. Inside the uh, Ark of the Covenant was the Ten Commandments, the the Moses' tablets. And depending on what time period we're talking about, uh, Aaron's Aaron's rod that budded to prove his authority as a priest. And also the golden pot of manna. All these things were contained within the Ark of the Covenant. This is the most holy place. There was three articles of furniture in the most holy place, if you're really good on the Old Testament, There was the the candelabra with the oil in it that was lit, perpetual burning. There was the altar of incense. The the incense was perpetually burning. And also was the uh, table with the 12 loaves of showbread. Then what you had is your uh, court of the priests, which was outside, uh, directly outside the, the structure itself and the altar where the sacrifices were done. And outside that, which it doesn't show that well, was the court of Israel. It was more... It was further out around and then the court of women and then here was the court of the gentiles so pretty much anything could happen there it was a huge open type atmosphere and basically what happened was there was more concentric circles around the center of the temple and these courts would would go further and further out as if you throw a rock in a puddle and you see the, the the waves ripple outside the other thing is we talked about the antonia fortresses up here Uh, The temple was situated on the northernmost part of Jerusalem. And just for geography, because we talk about that throughout the scripture, as you go further south, the Valley of Hinnom runs down at the south. The Brook Kidron runs to the east. Across the Brook Kidron is the Mount of Olives. And, you know, you're starting to get a geography about everything that happened around there. So Jesus sees this and, you know, he's quite disgusted about what they've turned God's house into. So, contemporary writings tell us that the, there was a great corruption of the high priesthood at the time. Now, this was Jewish writings, all right? They tell us that Yosef Caiaphas, the high priest, his high priesthood was very corrupt. And what would happen is the Bible said that you would have come to God with your animal, with your sacrifice, and they would be looked over for blemishes. They had to be a perfect animal and they would be sacrificed for your sins, okay? But what happened over the years was the priest got this, and man is corrupt, let's just face it. No matter, you know, you've got to look to God. You can't look to man because men will always let you down because we're inherently sinful. But what happened was the religious establishment decided they could make some money, right? They could look at your animal and decide maybe one curl of the lamb was shorter than the other, so your lamb was no good. You've got to buy one of ours, and they would charge usury. So the land would be far more expensive than the one you brought. So this is what they would do, and of course, doing it that way they could make a turn a pretty good profit doing that. Now, all the gospels taken together give the most comprehensive picture of this event. So Luke records this, Matthew also records it, John records an earlier event, and Mark records it. So I just want to kind of bring everything together to make you understand the full picture here. The first one uh, point is John chapter two speaks about the same type of event which took place at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. If you're familiar with that, in John chapter 2, Jesus actually made a whip of cords. I can imagine him sitting there with these cords and tying them up and making this whip, and, you know, that's taught, okay, let's go. And he starts snapping it, overturning the tables, getting everybody out of there. Get it all out of here. It's ridiculous. It's a circus. Well, what's really sad is that he drove them out the first time in his ministry, only but a few years back and to their shame, they came back. It's like a pig returning to his piggy slop. You know, it wasn't bad enough that he shamed them the first time and said, this is a house of God, get out of here. Well, it wasn't long before they brought all that stuff back in and you see him doing it again, right? Two, Matthew also records this event, and he says that they also sold doves. What's notable about doves is that if you look at Leviticus 12, if you were poor, you couldn't afford a regular-sized animal, no matter what it was. You, could, you would only bring the, your doves or your, your pigeons or your turtle doves to the, to the priest because you couldn't afford anything else, and they were cheap. So you would bring the doves over to there, and uh, you know they would do the sacrifice. But uh, what's really sad is these people even tried to take advantage of, a, of the poor person. Poor person would bring a dove, I don't like your dove, buy our dove. Instead of one penny, it's five pennies, right? The really thing that bothers me about this is, you know, you can certainly see it played out. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, talk, tell me a story about their grandmother or a widow telling me about her husband that died and saying, uh, right away the church wants money. You know, this woman doesn't have anything, but before they'll do the funeral service, they want money. So what's really a shame is that has kind of reflected into our society. Is there anything that's any different? So, um, it's pretty bad there, where people telling me that their churches forced them. You know, they want to see a, their W-2s or whatever. They want to know how much you make so they can make sure they get that certain percentage from you. We don't do that here. We won't ever charge for a funeral or a wedding. I, I just think it's not scriptural. Second Corinthians 9, 6, and 7, Paul says that God loves a cheerful giver. You shouldn't be forced to give anything. The third point is in Mark's gospel, it says that Jesus wouldn't allow anyone to even carry their wares through the temple area. He, he, he's, he stopped them. He exerted his rightful authority. And we'll see in the next block that this causes him problems by exerting that authority. Also in, in Matthew's gospel, he says that the blind and the lame came for healing after this event. So when these wolves, these charlatans, these, you know, uh, these people were removed, okay, the blind and the lame came to get healed, which is really a picture of a better use of God's home. And again, this all can be brought into you know, ecclesiastical situations today. What is God's house used for? You know, is it used for worldly things? Is it used to make money? Or is it used to bless people? And then the last part in Matthew, uh, Hosanna was spoken from the children. We saw in the triumphal entry that people were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now, we beseech thee. In this portion of scripture, the children are saying, Hosanna, 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 right? What's sad to see is the little kids of society got it, but the erudite of society didn't get it. The knowledgeable ones, the learned ones, they didn't get it, but the kids got it, right? It's amazing what the child can understand. I remember I was, uh, was it last year? My son was uh, six, five he had his little Etch-A-Sketch, and we were driving somewhere, and he's drawn little scenes of a monster and some soldiers. And he just says, look, Daddy, and he would show it to me. and said, oh, that's nice. The soldiers were all dead. The monster was still alive. And then he does it again. He draws another scene, and, you know, soldiers are all dead, and the monster's still alive. And I started to get upset. After the third time, I'm like, Josiah, the soldiers are the good, good guys. How come the monster keeps being alive and the soldiers are dead? He goes, Daddy, you know that sometimes evil prevails over good. I almost went up a curb. <laughs> so, you know, it's amazing the, the 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 we think kids are kids, right? And they just come out with these things that totally blow you away. I'm sure you've had those experiences with your kids, but Jesus takes two portions of scripture and puts them together. He says, "It is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves." Now, two portions of scripture. If you're taking notes, Jeremiah 7:11. That should be easy to remember. 7:11. And it says uh, in that scripture that God says that my house has become a den of thieves. This was, uh, you know, at the the era of the sixth century B.C. And we see it happening again. If you're taking notes, Isaiah 56, seven through nine, Isaiah 56, seven through nine. Jesus, I'm sorry, Isaiah says, uh, God says through him, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer. So Jesus kind of makes a contraction between those two scriptures and puts them together very appropriately, Right. It's been said that the New Testament is the best commentary on the Old Testament. A den of thieves. This is a place where uh, thieves would congregate and they would scheme to rob victims and they would go to avoid persecution. This was common back then. There was like no man's land. If you traveled through a certain area, there was no law enforcement. There was no establishments. You know, you took your life in your hands because literally there was caves and there was dens of thieves. And this is what these people would do. In the Good Samaritan parable, which some people believe actually wasn't a parable, Jesus may have been reflecting on current events, a man was beaten, robbed, and left for dead by thieves, right? Now, in the name of God, these religious leaders, look at the carryover, look at the comparison that Jesus makes. In the name of religion, these religious leaders were congregating and scheming to rob people of their money, to take them for everything that they were worth. And they also beat the spiritual life out of them and then hid in God's house to avoid prosecution. Think about that. They took the people's money. The people thought it's all about money. It it, kind of took the life out of them spiritually and um, they hid in God's house to avoid prosecution. But Jesus came to change that. What does the worship of God and houses of worship become in our society? You know, we, we look at the scandals. We look at the hypocrisy, the duplicity. We look at the greed now greed the funny thing is greed has morphed over the centuries it's not greed anymore in, in the church it's become a doctrine you know god wants me to be rich i mean god wants you to be rich but he wants to start at me first and if it spills over you that's okay but I, I should be rich so greed has become a doctrine we've called it a doctrine now which is pretty sad there was a i don't even know why i read the blogs in the news because probably so i can use them here for no other reason but there was a woman who uh, it was this church, I forget where it was, and they had a practice, they had a snake tank of poisonous snakes and part of their service was, imagine going there for the first time, you've got to handle the snakes. So there was a snake tank of poisonous snakes and they took one portion of scripture and they totally made a doctrine out of it. And their job, they would go to worship and they would handle these poisonous snakes saying the Bible says I won't get bitten by a poisonous snake. Well, this woman got bit, uh, one of the parishioners, and unfortunately she died as a result of being bit by a poisonous snake. Now, what does that say about us to the world? And this is what we're contending with. This is what people think Christians are. That's why people think Christians are kooky, right? But I would say that God's house truly is in need of another house cleaning. But then again, now let's bring it, let's bring it to more of a, a nerve, of more of a personal note. We can point the fingers, obviously, at other situations and bizarre things, and it's easy to point fingers and say, huh, look at me compared to them. But what does worship of God become to us personally? You know, I wonder sometimes if we need to clean out our temple sometimes and go back to the way God originally planned it. There's this song that's sung called The Heart of Worship, and the lyrics, I'm not going to sing it, you're not going to catch me doing that, but uh, the lyrics go like this, I'm coming back to a heart of worship because it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. And another line says, I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it because it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. Jesus. And we always have to be mindful of that because we can look at these guys as the bad guys and we can look at the snake handlers and the, the greedy people and say, man, we're okay. But there's always something in our hearts that we could kind of just clean out and, you know, say, this is, it's all about you, Jesus. And what am I doing that's not reflecting that? And how do I change that, right? Lastly on this, the evil leaders sought continually to destroy Jesus. Why? Because he was serving God. Psalm 34:19 says many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of all their troubles. So evil doesn't go after you if you're doing nothing for the kingdom. So if you want to be safe and you don't want any problems in your life, just come to church and make it very surface, make it a social club and do nothing for the Lord. I guarantee you, you probably won't have any problems. But if you're serving the Lord, uh, you know, these things are going to happen to you. I was talking to a sister uh, last night. And she was talking about these trials, and she's like, you know, these trials are coming on, and it's just coming from all these directions, and I know what it is. It's the enemy, because there was no other explanation for why these things were happening to the family. So that's true. Many of the afflictions of the righteous, however, the Lord delivers them out of all their troubles. Remember the second part. Now, as we go into chapter 20, we're a few days from the crucifixion. It's believed this next portion happens on the Tuesday of his last week, Jesus' last week. No doubt this challenge of Jesus' authority that we're going to read is a result of him exerting his authority in the temple, trying to root out that corruption. Verse 1. Now it happened on those, one of those days, as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, that the chief priests and the scribes, together with the elders, confronted him and spoke to him, saying, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? So you have the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, no doubt, Pharisees, and everybody else was part of that. They all kind of got together. What you see is all factions of this power base unite as they didn't want to lose that power, and Jesus was a threat to that power. The question is, or the question was designed to trap Jesus. As we're going to see next Sunday, they do it again. They keep asking him these questions to try to trap him so they could get rid of him. If Jesus answers, Well, no one gave me the authority. Then they're going to spread that around and tell the people, see, he doesn't have any authority. Why are you following him? Come back to us. You know, come back to the old school. If Jesus answered, God gave me the authority, now he's in trouble with Rome. Because the Romans, if you look through the book of Acts, you see different insurrectionists had risen up claiming to be the Messiah. And these false messiahs, when they rose up, tried to overtake Rome. And of course, the Romans had to put them down and, you know, once you strike the shepherd, the sheep scatter, all the followers dissipated. And this is what the Romans had to continually do, strike down these insurrectionists. So if Jesus said, my power comes from God, aha, we got him. You see that, you know, pontificus, look what Jesus just said, you know. So um, they would gladly snitch on him to the government, all the while saying, we have no king but Caesar, which they did later on, right? So they want to challenge his authority as a, because he's a threat to their power. You know, I see that too in the old guard of denominationalism asked that question also. How can you teach if you haven't been to seminary? Who gave you the authority to teach God's word? Where are your degrees, your fancy vestments, and your dazzling church building? Where's your techno building? You know, how can you teach God's word if you don't have these things? The question is, and you, you see it, Christianity has become so flashy. You know, these people have all these gimmicks to, to make themselves even... You know, they airbrushed them on these advertisements, and these these people look larger than life, these preachers, right? How did we get to this point? How did that happen? Because didn't God use fishermen, farmers, tax collectors, prostitutes, the sickly, and the grossly insecure? Didn't he use those type of people? Now we look for perfection, professionalism, polished, right? How did we get to this, this, this portion here? Did the disciples go to seminary? Did they have a hierarchy? Were they Nicolaitans? Didn't Jesus say, I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans? That hierarchy where the person, the people at the top subjugate the people at the bottom. Jesus said, I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. He said that in Revelation. And wasn't it said of the disciples, these are unschooled men? Where did they get this theological understanding? And the response was, well, they were hanging out with Jesus. It's obvious, right? So that's where they got it from. Verse 3. He says, But he answered and said this to them, I will also ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it was from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So Jesus, his answer to the question, he answers their question with a question, right, which he's done before. He was judging them, because if they didn't believe in John the Baptist, they certainly weren't going to believe in him, because John the Baptist was the forerunner to the Christ. It said that in scripture. Instead of being spiritually honest, they covered up instead of coming clean. I think about that, covering up versus coming clean. We see that a lot everywhere, don't we? If you run over a pedestrian as you drive to church, it's considered an accident. If you, leave this, if you run over a pedestrian and you leave the scene and then you get home and you take out the compounding and clean the blood off and you, you pick the bumper back up and put it back on and you try to you know, evade prosecution you get caught, you can go to jail. Self-pres- self-preservation is human nature. Trying to get into the least amount of trouble as possible when we've done something wrong. But co- covering up in an ecclesiastical sense is shameful. It undermines the trust in church leadership and it also distorts how people view God for those who are the the younger brothers or the the children in, in the spiritual things, right? So these leaders covered up the rejection of John the Baptist and the fact that they did nothing to try to stop his martyrdom and now as they're losing their authority over the people, the only thing left for them to do instead of doing the right thing, repenting and humbling themselves is to kill the Lord's Christ to maintain their position, right? In the beginning, John called them a brood of vipers and he told them to repent. But they wouldn't repent and they refused because one of their gods was the gods of authority. Tragically, when Jerusalem was destroyed, so was their authority base. They lost their earthly kingdom and their souls as well. And that brings up two more points out of this. Number one, Jesus said, what does a man profit if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? Nothing is worth hanging on to that tight. It's all the Lord's anyway. I think about my wife and my son, you know, people who are most dear to me. I didn't birth my wife and I didn't birth my son. And even though my wife birthed my son, he's the one who gave my son, the Lord is the one who gave my son life. So what can we really in this world, look around, you know, look what we're wearing. Is there anything that we can claim that's really ours? You know, what is it that you're, what are we holding on to so tightly that's just going to slip through our fingers anyway, right? There's nothing, nothing is worth that. And these, these guys were just holding on to that authority. and they, they were addicted to it. The second thing is you see the downward spiral, spiral of these leaders, this continual rejection. The Bible is very clear. You can harden your heart, and you can harden your heart. And, you know, Paul hardened his heart a few times, and then the Lord got a hold of him in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus with that bright light, and he, he turns. There's a lot of people that, that turn, but there's also a lot of people that harden their heart and harden their heart and then God hardened their heart. And now you're in trouble. Because God solidifies you in that sense where you keep hardening your heart and you're hardening your heart and God says, that's no, that's no problem. You can stay like that. Second Chronicles, I love to reference, uh, Second Chronicles 36 speaks about how the prophets would come and come and come and they harden their heart and they harden their heart until there was no remedy. That's a scary place to be. There's no remedy, right? So don't, don't get to that point. Today's the day of salvation, you know, There's there's still time to receive the Lord, but there's not always going to be time. So next, we're going to get into the parable of the vineyard owner, also covered in Matthew and and Mark, and then we're going to to close it up. So you see here in the the parable of the vineyard owner, uh, Jesus indirectly answers the question of his authority. So hold that thought. All the stuff that we're covering kind of is all interrelated. Where's your authority? Now Jesus is going to talk about this parable, He's going to make it very clear through the parable. He's going to illustrate where everybody's standing is, in uh, in the grand scheme of things. Verse nine. Then he began to tell the people this parable: A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. And I'll break it down. The certain man. I think it's obvious. The vineyard owner is God the Father. The vineyard is Israel. If you're taking notes, certainly write down Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. You're going to see how God speaks about how he planted the vineyard and, and dug, out, you know, he dug it out and cleaned out the briars and he, and he cultivated it. And this is a picture of the care that he gave to Israel. So Isaiah 5, 1 through 7 is like a parallel to this parable. So Israel is looked at as the vineyard or you can look at it, uh, the vineyard as Israel's blessings based on the last line that we're going to see. The vine dressers are the religious leaders, the shepherds of Israel. And the Bible speaks many in the prophetical writings about woe to the false shepherds, they'll be judged. In Matthew's Gospel, we get a little bit more detail and care that the Father puts into the nation. Matthew's Gospel gives a little bit more uh, definition to what we're reading here. Verse 10. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. The servants were the prophets, okay? And the fruit is the spiritual manifestations as a result of the blessings bestowed on the nation Israel. The spreading of the good news, at that time monotheism, the message of the true true and living God to the surrounding nations. Instead, the people, instead of spreading that goodness, they became infected by paganry and corruption of the religious system over the years. Verse 11. Again, he sent another servant, and they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent the third, and they wounded him also and cast him out. You see the continual beating, killing, and the persecution of God's people, God's prophets, God's messengers. Second Chronicles again, 36, uh, 14 to 21 really exemplifies that thought. Verse 13. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him when they see him. Obviously, the son is the picture of Jesus Christ. And 14. But when the vinedressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. The popularity increase of Jesus among the people caused the religious leaders' desperation to increase and to maintain control over the masses. Desperation to maintain control drives men to do crazy things. Again, you look at politics, cover-ups, 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 you know. You look at uh, the religious system, you look at churches, uh, there's cover-ups. You know, people are always covering up for something because they think that maybe no one will find out. But you know what? People find out. People always find out. And verse 15, so they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? This is a picture of the crucifixion. We finally got rid of this guy. And verse 16, he will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, certainly not. Eternal punishment awaits the false shepherds, that's for sure. But the destruction of the religious system as they knew it had to come to an end because it was a mockery of God. Uh, Giving the vineyard to others representation representation of salvation coming largely to the gentiles the church age now takes center stage Now in our lifetime, there's a few things to to bring up about this in our lifetime We may we may see that come to an end too, depending on how old some of us are I'm not going to make any prophecies because that's wrong But and and I don't know God knows but in our lifetime, we may see the church age come to an end Uh, And we'll see that last Shabuah, that last seven-year period spoken of in Daniel chapter 9, come into place. And remember, those sevens, those 77s were for, uh, the angel told uh, Daniel, for your people, they're for the Jews. 69 sevens have been complete. We've covered this in the past. And that last seven, that last seven-year period is still hanging out there. And at some point in time, the church will be removed, right? There'll be the rapture of the church. And then that seven-year period will start again, and the Jews will take center stage, the Israeli church, so to speak. To whom much is given, much is required, applies to all those who dare to represent God. It's funny how we can look at, people can do this all the time. They look at the Old Testament and say, man, God parted the waters. God gave them manna. God gave them quail. What were they thinking? How foolish could they be? But we do the same thing. And I think largely as a church, unfortunately, we're failing although we can be overly critical of those people that came before us. And their response, the religious leaders to Jesus, was certainly not when they heard it, when they heard what he said. Why? Because they knew exactly what Jesus was saying in the parable. They were horrified at the prospect that God would bring salvation to the Gentiles. What an attitude, huh? You know, you, you want people to come into the fold. You want... We don't want to see people destroyed. You, you, you want to see, you know, a lot of people come into salvation, but these people were like, no way. It was a, a picture of ex- exclusivity. Now, what was common was in those days, and there's cultural aspects of this too, tenant farmers would give some of the crop yield. It's a vineyard, right? You know, it's um, some of the crop yield, not in grapes, but in wine. They would actually, you know, bottle it up and, and transport it to the master as part of his payment. Now, what's interesting here is in the parable of the wineskins in Matthew's gospel, you see that the wineskins, the new wineskins had to be pliable for, for that wine to expand, right? A picture of the Holy Spirit, a picture of the age of grace, a picture of, you know, you have to, you have to come to the knowledge of salvation through Jesus Christ for the Holy Spirit to be in you. Otherwise, if you're an old wineskin, it can't, you can't hold it, you'll burst, right? But under the old corrupt religious system, they were unable to produce and maintain that wine. So the vineyards were def- deferred to the Gentiles for a time. I want to read one verse, Romans 11:25. One verse. Paul says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that hardening in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles Has come in. So Paul speaks, an ex Pharisee, he speaks about the hardening of the heart of of Israel, uh, rejecting their Messiah until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, the inclusion of the Gentiles into the fold, but that that hardening wouldn't be forever. It's only for a season. And again, I've said this before. Um, In my my belief, based on the scripture that I understand, again, if you look at that seven-year period, you also see the Great Tribulation. You see, uh, as that seven-year period starts, in three and a half years, the Antichrist breaks a covenant with the Jewish people. And then things really get bad in that last three and a half years. He desecrates the temple. He goes into the temple and exalts himself as God, wanting to be worshipped. And then the, the Jews look at that and go, "Oh boy, we made a mistake with this guy. He's trouble." And then the great persecution starts of the Jews, right? So um, you're going to see that happen. You're going to see the 144,000 Israelis, 12,000 from each tribe, get that special seal so that they can't be harmed. They're anointed. They're sent out to do God's will. It's, I tell you what, to watch that from the sidelines, man, that's pr- probably far more exciting than any football game or you know Steven Spielberg movie. That's going to be wild to see all the things that happen in the end times, in the times of Revelation, right? But uh, there's a few things to, that, to bring this home uh, and people can get the wrong impression. And th- this, I believe, is very important. Some people have taken this and used it to become anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic. That is not the purpose. There are some doctrines or denominations that have actually run with some of these scriptures and have actually been, you know, pr- persecuting the Jews and their attitude towards the Jews in general because of this. That's actually not what God is looking for here. There's a few things about that anti-Israel sentiment. We believe, you know, I believe, and Calvary's believe, in Israel's right to exist. Genesis 12 never was rescinded. He says to Abraham's nation, he says, I will bless bless those that bless you, and I will curse those that curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So are we supposed to, uh, you know, turn our backs on the jewish people absolutely not Uh, deuteronomy one speaks about the borders of israel that they were supposed to take that was their land Uh, there's a lot of satanic forces aligning even today to try to destroy israel okay the other thing is replacement theology that the idea that the church has replaced israel and god is done with israel that's not true either uh their unbelief it's clear is only for a time if you look at hosea remember Hosea's three kids uh Jezreel, God scatters, Lo, Rumaha, uh, not, not pitied, no mercy, and Lo, me, not my people. And with the whole life of Hosea and his wife, Gomer, he made a, a picture of how Israel was unfaithful to him uh, and how eventually he says to Hosea, buy her back from the slave market of sin. She was a harlot. And he said, that's what I'm going to do with my people, Israel. He goes, even though they've, they've committed spiritual uh, harlotry against me, I'm going I'm to bring them back. Now go from Hosea to Isaiah, uh, verses 60 through 62, and you see the restoration of Israel. All the nations are bringing them uh, supplies, and all the nations are are revering Israel. You see a great, uh, you know, revival happening in Israel, and that's not happening today. So that is definitely a picture of the future. Picture of israel how god's going to you know restore them and they're going to be a great nation once again So god's not done with with his people I believe that firmly because a lot of these scriptures haven't these prophecies haven't come to light yet They still have yet to be fulfilled and some believe that the church will overcome here That the church will become stronger and stronger and will overtake the political System and the government and we're going to have we're going to because of us We're going to establish a great nation on earth. I don't believe that either. That's ridiculous. Jesus said uh, my kingdom is not of this of this world, and only because Jesus comes back in Revelation 19 with the sword coming out of His mouth and He smites the nations, will we see, you know, Him subjugate and dominate this physical uh, world. So that's not our job to take up arms and start overthrowing the government either. And people have come up with some really bizarre doctrines through through reading the Scripture. But uh, verse 17. And then he looked at he looked at them and said, what then is that this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now, we covered this last Sunday. This is from Psalm 118. Uh, We covered this in in, extensively that the cornerstone that was rejected, Uh, maybe out of love and trying again to use God's word to stir up their hearts. He's trying to pierce them. Hey, guys, you know, you're the religious leaders. You know, the scripture and he just keeps throwing scripture at them. You would. I mean, they know this stuff. Trying to get that scripture to pierce through their hearts, but it, and I think it's it 's a last ditch effort really out of love. did Jesus love the religious leaders? did Jesus love the people that nailed them to the cross? You bet he did. He loves us all, but you know he he 's trying to get them to repent and to make that decision he can 't force them to do it so it 's amazing how the ones very ironic how the ones who knew god 's word the most turned cold toward it, and that blows me away when I see. Things happen where people know that Bible inside and out, and they do things that are just so bizarre. It's duplicitous. It's like they they have two minds, in a sense. And the Bible speaks about double-mindedness. James says, don't think that double-minded will get anything. Uh, He's unstable in all his ways. Verse 18, whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. In the Old Testament, God was always the rock. In the New Testament and, and Messianic prophecies, Jesus takes that. He is the stone. He is the rock. Okay. Uh, whoever falls on him will be broken. There's hope for you if you you get to the depths of your life and you fall and you fall on the on the cornerstone and you're broken. You know, if you fall on a stone, you fall far enough, you're going to break a bone. But the good news is bones can heal, and that's a good thing. But woe to him whom the uh, the stone falls on and crushes him and grinds him to powder. That's the picture of, again, I said it before, it's too late. You know, once Hebrews 9.27 says uh, that we only live one life and then comes the judgment, right? So, you know, there's going to come a point in time, maybe through a heart attack or a car accident or something where, you know, you're, now you're in eternity and you're like, uh-oh, <laughs> it's too late at that point, right? There's nothing you can do then. And one other thing, uh, Daniel 2.34-35, Daniel... Two thirty-two through, I'm sorry, 34 through 35, it speaks about, Nebuchadnezzar had his, this dream about the kingdoms, you know, the, the, uh, the head of gold and the, and the shoulders and chest of silver and the belly of bronze and the legs of iron and the feet of iron and uh, clay mixed together. And uh, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar what the dream is and the, the each different parts of the body represents a different kingdom. And then in the scripture, Daniel 2, at the end, he says, and then a rock, that wasn't cut with human hands, came and smashed the image and ground it to powder. And, and, you know, it rained in the earth. So that's, you know, it's again, it's a picture of Jesus Christ. Eventually, the world empires and the world systems, including the religious systems, the false systems are going to be ground to powder. So again, if that's what you're waiting for, that's a problem. You know, you certainly come to him now, fall on the stone, be broken, be humble, repent, and then be filled back up by him and used for his glory. To to bring it all home, to whom much is given, much is required. We saw how much religious Jerusalem was given by God in the form of his word, his miracles, his promises, and his physical presence. When it was harvest time, they refused to give any fruit. Why? Because they were spiritually bankrupt. We saw that in the parable of divine dressers. Now, again, I've said this before, it's easy to point fingers, but what about the largely Gentile church of today? Where, Where do... I wonder what type of report card that God would give us. Um, and and it's, I think it's clear that we give way, the church gives way to the Israeli church again into the end times when the true believers are raptured from the earth. But what about on a personal note? When we live in this society, all of us here, even some of us who think that we don't make a lot of money and don't have a lot, you know, even the, the poorest among us live better than 90% of the world's population. What what are we doing with our lives, you know? What are we doing with what we've given, both physically and our spiritual knowledge? Have we first submitted to the authority of God in Christ, which is the first step? And from there, have we given him the fruit of our lives that he so much deserves? So I ask this question to you. If you don't know the Lord, you know, I, I challenge you to take this opportunity now to get to know him to have that relationship with him before it's too late. Because our life is but a a vapor, it's but a breath. We're here today and gone tomorrow. Um, And if you're a believer and your relationship is far from what it should be, it's never too late to repent and give God, get rid of those old wineskins and become those new wineskins that God is looking for. Let's pray.